Good morning to you all. Today is Sunday, October 16th, right? 16th in the year of our Lord, 2020. And uh, my name is Greg, and I get the pastor of the Bethel Bible Salado campus. So it's good to be with y'all. y'all are, that was a joke. You're all going, really? We have a Salado campus now? Why? Why would we? Where's Salado, right? My wife, Myra, and I are members here, but I moved away, uh, now going on three years, uh, to take a position at the University of Mary Hardin Baylor. Somebody? Is Is there no crew in here? Oh, break my heart. All right, go crew. Uh, so uh, my wife, Myra, but we're back here frequently. We love this congregation. We're members here and um, just love being here. And, and Eric gives me opportunity to uh, preach occasionally, particularly when there's a passage that he doesn't want to cover. He'll give it to me. So that's the case today, as you'll see why. <laughs> my wife, Myra, is here. My daughter, uh, my middle daughter, Lily, and her husband, Kerrigan, live here in Tyler. So we're back here uh, frequently to see them. And uh, so we love to come back as often as we can and stay here for church because I love this congregation. So it's great to be here. I'm glad you're here with us. I hope you love this congregation too. If you're just visiting with us, uh, you will love it. Keep coming. I mean, it's a great, it's a great congregation. So good stuff. Um, all right. So what should we do now? Uh, would you, as Peyton said, the answer is Jesus. So that's kind of the answer to all of what I have to say today. It is the fulfillment of all that we have to say. But today we are in Joshua chapter 5, and so if you'd like to turn there um, with me, Joshua chapter 5 is today. By way of introduction, I was um, on campus a couple weeks ago. I went to get my flu shot in the nurse's office, and the nurse had a poster uh, behind her. And the the quote said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God, which I thought was incredibly insightful. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. It, It was particularly impactful when I looked at who said it. That was a quote by Corey Ten Boom. If you know who Corey Ten Boom is, Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch... Christian. She lived in the Netherlands and watchmaker family. During World War II, her family sheltered uh, Jews who were escaping the Holocaust, who were escaping Nazi persecution. She actually had a, a secret room in her closet in her bedroom where they would let families come in who were escaping persecution and would stay in her closet in her room, essentially. The, the amazing thing is um, her, her faith remained firm. Her family got sold out, and her, her entire family was arrested, put into Nazi concentration camps. I believe it was her and, and her sister were the only two who survived. Her family was, was killed in Nazi concentration camps. And so when I, when I saw that quote, I thought, amazing. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. I mean, who, who would know more about an unknown future than Corey Ten Boom? But I thought during that time, she must have had questions. There must have been times during her imprisonment when she wondered, is God still on my side? Does God still love me? She had to have those questions. And and yet now we know, I mean, the end of the story, Corey Ten Boom has passed away, but she became a hero of the faith. She wrote the book, The Hiding Place, and, and traveled the world uh, preaching the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Her faith was very strong. But again, there, there must have been times when she doubted and wondered, is God on my side? We, we join uh, the people of God, the family of God, as we're studying through the book of Joshua. <clears throat> and of all people who should, who should have known God, it would have been this people. Uh, and so they... but as they're wandering through the wilderness, even though, I mean, they, they've got the promise to Abraham, they've got God's faithfulness through their uh, enslavement to Egypt, they're led out, uh, they cross the Red Sea in a miraculous way, they're led by fire at night and a cloud by day, 
And they're given manna and they're given quail in the wilderness to sustain them. So even in all of that, there, there were times we know when they questioned God, is God really on my side? And so, and so the, the big idea today is it's not a big idea, it's a big question because you and I may wonder this as well. There are times in our faith when we may have wondered the same thing. If you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, there may have been something that's tragically happened to you or your family when you've wondered, is God on my side? And so the, and so the big idea today is a big question, and that is this question, is God on my side? And that's what we're going to encounter today as we look at the children of Israel as they cross into the promised land. We're going to look at chapter 5 today. So if you want to flip there with me, and we'll put it up on the screen as well. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to dig into it verse by verse. <clears throat> and I'm reading out of the uh, New International Version. Uh, chapter 5 uh, of Joshua. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbeth Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who had come out of Egypt and all the men of military age died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised. But all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed uh, the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the, the, the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. And they were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Uh, so the place they had, uh, has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. <clears throat> now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front with, of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, we look at this chapter, we just pray you would help us to understand um, what's going on here. There's a lot going on here. Just pray that you would help us to not just see your truth, but help us to apply it to our lives and that it might impact our faith. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to study, and we just pray you bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this passage has a lot about circumcision, obviously, which is why Eric is out of town and gave it to me. So <laughs> we'll talk about that, but I want to set your minds at ease. We're not going to go into a medical description of circumcision. We're going to call that a special tattoo, okay? So then when you get questions later on, parents, you'll know it's a special tattoo. Uh, let's review, though, because the four chapters have happened before chapter five, and so we need to review what's going on up until this point in Joshua. Remember, Joshua is an extension of Deuteronomy, so the whole story from the Israelites um, um, leaving Egypt up until crossing, now they've crossed over in the promised land, is, is a, a big continuous thing with a lot that's going on. And so we'll try to cover that and give you all the background of that as we go through this. 
But where does Joshua begin? Joshua begins, uh, obviously, in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Moses is dead to begin with, right? Actually, that's the Dickens version, but it's kind of like that. That's where it starts. Uh, Moses is, this is after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead, and then you lead these people. So, so Joshua gets, uh, gets the scepter as it were. Joshua is established as the new Moses. Now, the, the beginning part of Joshua in the first four chapters, what we see the author doing is establishing, establishing Joshua uh, as the new Moses. So you'll note some of the things that Moses did that God uh, led Moses through. The very similar, similar things are going to happen to Joshua. So Joshua is established as the new Moses. Notice that there is a land promise that's reestablished. We're going to go into that later on. But chapter 1, verse 3, I will give you, as God talks to, to uh, Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. So, so God reestablishes the covenant that God made with Moses prior to that that God made with Abraham and now establishes it with Joshua. You're going to get the land, he says. Uh, he establishes the covenant, the land of promise, and reestablishes it with Joshua. In chapter 2, verse 1, Joshua, as they're, on, uh, as they're sitting there now across the Jordan, and they're in the promised land, Joshua sends two spies from Shittim to look over the land, and especially Jericho. Now, Joshua sends spies. What does that remind you of? Moses sent spies as well. When they were wandering around in the wilderness, got near the promised land, Moses sent 12 spies. Two came back, Joshua and Caleb, and said, they're big, but we can take them. <clears throat> and the rest of the spies said, no way. And, and it was because of that report and, and because that was a culmination, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, God sentences them to 40 laps in the wilderness. So they took 40 years, they have to go around uh, because of that report and because of their unbelief. Uh, so Joshua sends spies just like Moses. It turns out a lot better for Joshua. The spies come back and said, let's go. We can take them. Um, in chapter 3, they cross the Jordan, but they don't just cross the Jordan at the, the, the ferry crossing. They, they get to the Jordan, they put their toes in the water, and the waters separate, and, and the entire nation crosses through the Jordan on dry land. Now, what does that remind you of? Moses crossing the Red Sea. Okay, so again, what's the author doing? He's establishing now that Joshua is the new Moses and that God is with Joshua. And it goes so far as to say in chapter 4, verse 14, uh, when they crossed that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Okay, so you have now Joshua, the new Moses, First four chapters, it's clearly establishing that, and then we get to uh, chapter five, um, which starts this way. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites, okay? Good time to attack, right? Now, Joshua's the military leader. He's got his military. They've crossed over the Jordan. Everybody's afraid of them. They're melting in fear. Good time to attack. What does God ask him to do? Verse 2, at, time, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Now, we have to stop right there, okay? Uh, do a little explaining on this one. Um, it's because of this, I... I thought about titling the sermon, Don't Get Hurt Twice, but um, it seemed tacky uh, and trademarked. So, it <laughs> uh, so what is this deal about, about circumcision again? And what is this deal about circumcision to begin with? Again, we're going to call that a special tattoo, so parents explain later on. Um, but this is what God gave all the way back to Abraham. This is what God asked Abraham to do. When God establishes his covenant with Abraham, he said, as a symbol of this, I'm going to ask that all the males take this mark of circumcision, okay? We've got to look at it. There's two covenants that establish uh, our understanding of this chapter, 
that are so important, but we've got to look at this together. Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 17. This is where God makes his covenant with Abraham, okay? We'll call this the Abrahamic covenant, but it's really important in understanding Joshua in, in whole. This covenant, along with the Mosaic covenant, are really important in understanding all of Scripture, honestly. Let's look at 17, 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, <clears throat> the Lord appeared to him. At this point, Abraham has no children. The Lord appears to him and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations, which is impossible. He's 99 years old. He has no children. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Notice how God says, I have made you a father because it's God and whatever God says is going to happen. So it's a sure deal. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. So right now we know one of the aspects of the Abrahamic covenant is that there are many nations going to come from Abraham, who is now childless and, and his wife is barren. But now God says, I'm going to bless you. Many nations are going to come from you. So that's one aspect of Abrahamic covenant. It said to the generations to come, uh, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their gods. That's the second aspect of Abrahamic covenant. We get the many nations coming from Abraham and, and his, uh, his, his kids, and then we get this land promise to Abraham that God makes to him. God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. So what is it that they have to do to keep the covenant? Verse 10, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Keep that in mind because we're going to find out back in Joshua that when they get to the promised land, many of them have not been circumcised. And what does that mean? They will be cut off. So, so there's more than just wandering around in the desert that is faulty about this people. Uh, but that's the Abrahamic covenant. Again, two things God promises. I'm promising you, Abraham, many, many generations and nations will come from you. And I'm promising you, Abraham, that they will have a land into eternity. I will promise you a land. And so that's God's promise to Abraham, a land and a seed. Uh, so, so circumcision then becomes a mark, that special tattoo that God gives for the males of Israel is a special mark of affiliation, number one, to the community, that they're all in this faith community together, they all have this same mark, and, and it's about commitment to the covenant and a constant reminder of what God promised Abraham. For hundreds of years, even today, Jews still circumcise the male children in a ceremony, and it is a reminder of this Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> Furthermore, the type of mark that it was should have reminded them, these males, continually that they had a responsibility in terms of reproduction uh, to bear children uh, who would be faithful to the God of Abraham. That's what they should have remembered. Now, that's particularly important because they're about to go into the promised land, and God doesn't clear it out before they get there. It's full of vileness and sexual immorality because all the nations that are there uh, are, it's wild. Let's just put it that way. Uh, the, the, sexual, the, the sexual practices uh, are even built into cultic uh, rituals uh, in their temples. Uh, 
Uh, I mean, one case in point is when, when Joshua sends the two spies uh, into Jericho, who's the first person they meet? Rahab, the prostitute, right there at the city wall, right, setting up shop. And, and so that gives you kind of a flavor for what's going on in the promised land at this time, which is why God is going to clear them out, okay, to bring them in. But this mark, this circumcision would be a constant reminder for the males that you need to be responsible with what God has given you and your maleness uh, to be responsible to the covenant, um, which, I, which I think is, I don't want to get political, you know, I don't want to get too much into this, but, but if males today would take more responsibility uh, for what God has given us in terms of this, um, maybe we'd have less issues in society talking about uh, my body, my choice. I mean, if, if, if the men would take responsibility for what God has given us and what we're supposed to do. Uh, this is maybe an aside, but I thought it was interesting talking about um, uh, responsibility for um, teaching the younger generations, bringing the younger generations along. I, this was shocking to me but maybe it shouldn't have been. I, I work at a university, so I get to see the data all the time. We were looking at the number of students that we have who are, um, who are in the education program. They're going to be teachers. Okay. So we have like 100, at the University of Mary Arden Baylor, we have 3,500 students. About 160 are currently registered to get a degree in education. So they're going to be teachers. Of the 160 that we have registered to be teachers, um, I thought this was a mistake. I looked at the data. There are, we have, I think, a total of eight males right now, 160 teachers, eight males. And uh, I was just kind of shocked by that, and I thought, that's, a, that's, that's something. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, you know, females can't teach. Females obviously can teach. Most of us probably remember more of our female teachers than our male teachers. It always seems to have been that way. But to me, it, it, it's kind of a sign that Males have withdrawn from that responsibility to take, to bring up younger generations to the Lord. Maybe I'm making too much of that. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying that, you know, a female can't teach, but a female can't be a male. And so in terms of, in terms of growing up and teaching kids how to, how to, how to react to, to both male and female, kind of the, the whole centered education, uh, I think it's, I think it's an important thing but I think it's uh, a sign of the times that, that uh, fewer and fewer men are going into education. So that's just an aside, perhaps. Perhaps that's just my soapbox. But that was free. So, um, so Abrahamic covenant, a land uh, and a nation. God makes this uh, individually. This is an individual covenant that God makes with Abraham uh, and, it, and it is unconditional. God is going to perform this without condition. The only thing he asks is circumcision as a sign of that covenant. Um, now, the other, the other covenant that becomes important is uh, Mosaic covenant. When, again, Joshua is the continuation of Deuteronomy. Or Deuteronomy. When, when, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt... Okay, he, he brought them out to make them a nation, but they were not a nation yet. They were still just a tribe of Abraham. He brings them out. They, they go into the wilderness. They go to Mount Sinai, and what does God do? He gives them the law, okay? And, and it's at that place where the people of Israel are going to become a nation, and they're going to have a law. And so Abraham, the, the covenant with Abraham is personal. It's unconditional, but we see where the, the covenant that God is going to make with Moses is is through Moses, but it's for the nation of Israel. It's a national covenant, and it does have conditions. Uh, turn to Exodus chapter 19. Again, this is the, the Abraham's people. Now, this is f f over 400 years now they've been in slavery to Egypt, so this is a long time past Abraham. And Abram hasn't seen this, but now under, under Egypt, in slavery, they have reproduced. And so 
God is fulfilling his promise that he made to Abraham in an unlikely way, but in a protected way uh, under the protection of Egypt, uh, but, but not without difficulty. Uh, but he brings them out because he sees that they're ready. He brings them out, and in chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, in the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai, after they set out for Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called on him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you, all, you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. What did they say? We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to God. This is when they become a nation. This, this is... Eric has, has uh, called this the Susuran vassal treaty. This is, this is God saying, I am, I am the king. This, this is what I will commit to. You are my people, my vassals. This is what you will commit to. And here's where they make that commitment and said, everything God has said, we will do. Would seem like a hasty reply to me because it doesn't work out that way as we see. Uh, but they said, everything we do, everything God has said, we will do. And then they become a nation. Now, we don't find out what those conditions are. They're hinted at here in Exodus chapter 19. It's not until we get to the end of Deuteronomy when Moses is going to elaborate on those conditions. In the end of Deuteronomy chapter 28, I won't read it to you, but Moses splits up the people before they, before they go into the promised land. And Moses is not going to get to go with them. <coughs> Excuse me. I got a little congestion thing going on here, so I may occasionally flip back to Lou Rawls' voice. So, and if you know who Lou Rawls is, you're old like me. So, <laughs> so end of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to elaborate on the conditions of this covenant that God makes with Moses, okay? So remember, Abraham, individual, unconditional, Moses, national and conditional, and in 28, he, he, he elaborates on those conditions he splits them up into two people. He puts one half of the people on one mountain, one half of the people on the other mountain. And then the, and then the one half starts talking about the blessings. If we obey God, then we'll have all these blessings. And he talks about your crops are going to produce. You're going to produce lots of people. You're going to be able to stay in the land. It's going to be fruitful. It's going to be great. Then the other half says, if we don't obey God, here are the cursings that are going to come. It's going to be disease, it's going to be uh, lack of rain, the crops are going to fail, and, and we're even going to be taken out of the land, okay? And those are the cursings that would come if we don't obey God. Now, remember, they signed up for all this. They said, everything you have said, we will do. <clears throat> so that's Mosaic covenant. It's very important to understand those two covenants, not just for Joshua 5, but if you don't understand those two covenants, Abraham and Mosaic, I would suggest that probably 80% of Scripture is going to be locked up for you. You're not going to understand the prophets, for instance. Uh, you're not going to understand a book like Hebrews or Galatians when you get to the New Testament. It's going to be very difficult to understand those books. <clears throat> Here's a case in point. Um, in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verse 14, some of you may have memorized this verse. If you have to understand, again, this verse <clears throat> from the aspect of Mosaic Covenant. Now, Second Chronicles happens hundreds of years after this Mosaic Covenant is given, <clears throat> and this is at the dedication of Solomon's temple. And, and so listen to what God says to Solomon. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. <clears throat> so they're doing everything right at this point, Right? Is God on my side? We're doing everything right here. God's on our side. We're good. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down from the glory of the Lord, 
above the temple. They knelt on the pavement, their faces, the ground. They worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. Um, So all this is going on at the dedication of the temple. But listen to what God says. Lord appears to Solomon, verse 11. When Solomon had finished the, the, the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Now listen to verse 13, because this is key. Again, keep in mind Mosaic Covenant. What did God say? If you obey me, blessings. If you disobey me, cursings. And listen to what he says to Solomon. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Now God is saying, when I do it. It's already saying to them, you're going to fall under the curses of the Mosaic Covenant because it's just who you are. So when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people... That's the cursings of a disobedient people that God had promised through Moses. Here's the verse you'll recognize. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What's God saying? Under the Mosaic cursings, if you, children of Abraham, who have I made this covenant with, if, if you will turn and seek my face and pray, I will restore you back to the blessings of Mosaic Covenant. That's, that's part of this covenant that God made nationally with Israel. Uh, guess what? It doesn't apply to us, okay? We're, we're not part of that covenant. That covenant, praise God, f- fulfills in Jesus Christ. Again, as as Peyton said earlier, the answer is Jesus Christ. So much of what we see in Joshua 5 points to who Jesus Christ is. But this one is, is not about the United States. You probably saw that verse maybe printed on a bulletin or something on July 4th. It's not about the United States. This is God and his covenant with Moses that it's talking about. This is what we call the old covenant. Okay, so that's Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. And it's important that we understand that when we look at Joshua chapter 5. So circumcision is a mark that God placed on the covenant that he made with Abraham that gave the people a nation and a land, okay? So that, that carries forward. Uh, even today, the Jews, the Jews perform uh, a circumcision ceremony on their young boys, and it's called part of, part of the ceremony. It's, it's called bris is, what they, is, is the ceremony they do. Um, but that covenant is not for us. We're, we're Gentiles. Uh, so we go on. So, so, they, so they, he asks uh, uh, Joshua, circumcise them a second time. And then he goes on to explain what that means. They're not going to get circumcised twice. This is why uh, uh, he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. It's a timing thing. So so they did a circumcision before they left Egypt. And then um, because of their disbelief and they put God to the test, they get cursed to wander around in the desert for 40 years until all the men of military age died out. That means those who were circumcised in Egypt who were younger than 20 were still circumcised and were going to enter the promised land. But the rest of them who were born in the wilderness, were not circumcised. Uh, So that's what it means, circumcised again. So they're going to perform this circumcision ceremony. So this tells us something about what's happening in the wilderness. It's not just about walking around and enjoying manna and pheasant or quail. This is a cursed generation. And and what does it mean that they're not circumcised? Number one, it, it means that they can't fully participate in, in the uh, in this covenant ceremonies that God had prescribed for the nation of Israel, because they're not circumcised. They're, they're considered cursed and cut off, is, is what the Bible says. So that 40 years is not just a physical wandering around, but it's a spiritual wandering around. And then those of military age die out. And, and so, uh, so that's, the, that's the, the whole idea of the, the second circumcision. Let me get to chapter 10, or excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 5. Um, 
On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal in the plains of Jericho. Now, they've crossed over, right? They've crossed over the Jordan. Uh, they're camped out on the plains of Jericho. The Israelites celebrated the Passover. Now, that's, that's key, right? Because you had to be circumcised to celebrate the Passover. That's why circumcision had to happen first. And it was no, it's no uh, uh, luck of the draw here that they crossed over the Jordan at this particular day because God brought them over for Passover. But in order to celebrate Passover, they had to be circumcised. That means for 40 years, wandering around in the desert, they haven't celebrated Passover. That very thing, which was to look back at what God had done to bring them out of slavery, they weren't celebrating that. So God allows them to celebrate Passover. The day after Passover, the very day they ate some of the produce of the land, uh, unleavened bread and roasted grain, the manna stopped, and the day after they ate this food from the land, there was no longer any manna for the Israelites but yet that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now, that's an interesting one too because manna to me proved that God was with them, right? Doesn't that make sense, right? We see that God provided for them miraculously in the wilderness, even though they were disobedient to him for 40 years, they're not even celebrating Passover or a lot of the, a lot of the, the tabernacle um, rites, but God continues to be faithful to provide them with manna and to provide for them quail through the wilderness even provide them miraculously with water. So to me, when I look, if there's a question of, is God on our side? And surely the Israelites asked that question a lot. Is God still on our side? They kept thinking, maybe we should go back to Egypt. We at least had onions. Um, so now they're wondering around, is God on my side? Well, surely the manna would tell them, God is on your side. He's providing with you. So you and I would say, well, that's, a, you know, that's provision from God. The question is, did they see that as provision of God? We know the story, right? How long was it before they started to complain about the manna? I mean, they, they didn't have ketchup. They didn't have, you know, sandwiches. Or, and they still they began to complain about this miraculous provision from God. Interesting to note that God says that that, that manna um, was to test them. Uh, and, and he says that this is about thankfulness. What God was teaching them was about thankfulness, that they got the same thing every day. Deuteronomy 8 says, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and, pros and possess the land. Uh, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart whether or not you would keep his commands. What is God after? Just obedience. Just follow me. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. That wasn't so much about provision as that was the physical part of it, but spiritually, that was about humility and thankfulness, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's written in the Old Testament long before Jesus Christ in Deuteronomy. Christ is going to quote that very passage, which we'll get to. But he said, this was to teach you. This was to discipline you. This was to teach you that man does not live by bread alone. It's not about the flesh. You keep throwing flesh at spiritual problems, and I hate that, God tells them. I hate your sacrifices. He's going to tell them about circumcision. I hate your It's a circumcision of the heart that I desire. Stop throwing flesh at your spiritual problems. So they're circumcised, so they get to partake in the Passover, which, which calls them back to mind of God's faithfulness in bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. But, I, but it's convicting for me, too, to think about the oftentimes how ungrateful I am <clears throat> about God's provision. Every day, we, we ought to be able to see what God has provided for us and be thankful for that. Um, on to verse 13 in Joshua, something curious happens next. Now, when Joshua is near Jericho, Joshua knows he's going he's to have to lead them to Jericho. He sees the walled city. They're camped there on the plains of Jericho. 
Uh, they have no technology to go take this city, but he knows this is where they're headed. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. Yet another example of something Joshua did, which was like Moses. But here we find out that this is no ordinary angel. This is what's called a theophany. This is God in the flesh. I believe, I believe this is Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ, come to visit Joshua. And what does Joshua want to know? Are you on my team or not? And the shocking reply, the shocking reply... <laughs> Now listen, this is the children of Abraham. This is the covenant people. These are people who know they're tight with God. You know, we've got the temple. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. We've got all of this. And, and, and the shocking reply from the, the commander of the Lord's army, I believe Jesus Christ himself, when, when, when Joshua asks, are you for us or our enemy? The enemy is nasty. So it should be an obvious answer. Well, clearly, we're for the people of Abraham, Jesus would reply. But are you for us or our enemy? Look at the response. Neither. Wow. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Do you see the Joshua 1.0 and the Joshua 2.0 here? Joshua 1.0 is that I'm, I'm... Military commander, um, all about the flesh. We're going to beat these people. Joshua 1.0 is, are you on my team or not? And then when he realizes who he's talking to, it's Joshua 2.0, which is, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Now, that's going to be an incredibly important lesson for Joshua because he's about to come up against Jericho, and he has no ability to take that city. And so if he doesn't listen to God, what message does my Lord have for me? He's going to fail miserably in Jericho. But he goes up against Jericho with a horrible battle plan given to him by God. But it's incredible, right? Like he gets this, all his warriors together and says, here's what we're going to do on day one. Okay, you ready for this? We're going to walk around the city. And they're going to go, okay, and then what? Nah, that's it. That's day one. We're just going to walk around the city. Day two, we're going to walk around the city. What's going to happen next? That's it. But on day seven, they're going, okay, now it's going to get good. On day seven, we're going to walk around the city. But then, and they're going, okay, cool. And then, then we're going to blow a trumpet and yell. They've they got to be going, are you kidding me? <laughs> but it works, right? Why? Because it's God's plan. That's Joshua 2.0, and he's ready to go up against Jericho. Unfortunately, and this is a lesson for all of us, where we want to be Joshua 2.0, but we keep falling back to Joshua 1.0. Because the next chapter, verse 7, chapter 6, they take Jericho. Chapter 7, they're horribly defeated by uh, Ai because they were overconfident. The word came back and said, now nah, we can take these guys. We don't even need all our people. And they get trounced. Joshua, back to Joshua 1.0. So what's the application as we move to, to close this out? Is your faith more like Joshua 1.0 or Joshua 2.0? That question, is, is God on my team, is something we all constantly are asking when things don't happen quite right, when we come up against life tragedies. Have you seen that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? That's Joshua 1.0. I want God to be my co-pilot. I want God to be on my team, but I don't want him to make waves. I just want him to be there when I need him, kind of like a good luck charm. That's, that's Joshua 1.0. How do you know if you're Joshua 1.0 or Joshua 2.0? Well, for one thing, how do you pray? Because this was convicting for me as I thought about this, and I thought, I often pray, God, here are my plans. Please bless them. Okay. Don't we? God, please bless us. That's how we pray. Rather than Joshua 2.0, God, what are your plans? Can I take part in that? That's Joshua 2.0. By the way, much scarier. But that's where we are. 
Joshua 1.0 verses 2.0. Where else does it show up? It shows up when your faith is tested in, in, in life's great tragedies. We have a friend who <clears throat> recently lost some family members in a very tragic way, very unexplained, very unexpected, very tragic way. And as she wrestled through that, her, her question was, I thought God was on my side. Where is God in all of this? I thought God was on my side. And it really tested her faith at that point in time. I, I've talked to folks who, who have decided to become atheists. And, and generally, the, generally the explanation is, well, I just, can't, I just can't trust a God who would allow a child to have cancer. Uh, you know, t- typically what happens is we, don't, we, we, we cruise along thinking God's on our team until something tragic happens to us personally, and then we question God. But, but the reality is, if, if something tragic happens to me today, that same tragedy happened to thousands of people the day before, but it didn't affect me personally. So what does that say about my faith? See, uh, we're Joshua 1.0 often. We keep falling back to Joshua 1.0. God, I want God to be on my team. I want God to be safe, right? It reminds me of that, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis's great analogy about Jesus Christ. And the, I don't know if you read it. It's a great, great book. It's, it's an easy analogy. It's, it's clearly that the, they have this character called Aslan, who's a lion, and is Jesus Christ. The children get into this magical world through a wardrobe called Narnia, and they're wandering around, and, and they haven't met Aslan yet, but they meet the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're talking to them, and, and the beavers are explaining about the kingdom and explaining about the king. And, and I think it's Lucy who says, well, what's he like? And Mr. Beaver says, well, he's... Uh, he's a lion. And, and Lucy says, oh, I, I should be quite afraid to meet a lion, she said. Is he safe? And, and Mr. Beaver's response says, is he safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And, and it reminds me of this, our Joshua 1.0 faith has us in that in that mode where we want God to be safe all the time. But when something happens tragic in our life, we realize, you know what? Life is not safe. There there are no promises. Did Jesus ever promise 100% safety? Did did Jesus ever promise 100% easy life? What did he say? In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. doesn't promise safety. He promises overcoming. Be anxious for nothing but all things in prayer and supplication. What? Let your request be made known to God. And then what happens? And the peace of God, not the safety of God, the peace of God will help you to overcome. We're not taken out of this world. We're going to experience tribulation. We're going to experience untold difficulty. I just continue to think of Corey Tinboom and think, she had to just question, where is God? Is God on my team? And, and so, that, so that question is that, that God, doesn't, God doesn't want our, our flesh. He doesn't want repetition or ritual. God wants our hearts. He wants us to be obedient, to obey him. He wants us in that Joshua 2.0 mode, and, and that calls for your heart. Um, the, the good news is that all these things that we've, we've seen in, in chapter 5 in Joshua, all these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This, this idea of circumcision is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a better circumcision, it says in Colossians. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. It's not about the flesh. Don't keep throwing flesh at spiritual problems. Your whole self, ruled by flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision is through Jesus Christ. There is a better circumcision. It is faith in Jesus Christ. The baptism that we do, which in two weeks you can be baptized, that is a symbol of that circumcision. But but don't make any mistake. God doesn't want the ritual. He wants your heart. If you've been baptized in the Spirit, get baptized. It's a symbol. It's great. It's part of the community that we do here. But it's meaningless unless unless you've been born again in Spirit. 
There is a better Passover. This chapter talked about Passover. There is a better Passover. Uh, in, cha- in, in Luke chapter 22, uh, Christ says to them, um, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover you, with you before I suffer. On the night he was betrayed, Christ sat down with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And what did he do to the Passover? He created the new covenant and said, this cup, as we just celebrated moments ago, this cup is, the, is my blood, which is given for you. This, this cracker, this bread is my body, which is given for you. This is a new Passover. And so we celebrate it. Cool. Every, we celebrate it every week in this church. It's, it's a ritual which causes us to be together. But again, the ritual's meaningless unless you've applied the, the blood of Jesus Christ to your life through faith in Jesus Christ. There is a better Passover. There is a better manna. What did Christ say about manna in John chapter 6, 49? Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will give for the life of the world. That's a better manna. It's in Jesus Christ. So Joshua 1.0 or Joshua 2.0? Joshua 2.0 is not safe, but it's good. Following Jesus Christ is not safe, but it's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fulfillment of all these things through the life of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, the resurrection, and, and, and Lord, that your son lives even now. We thank you so much for all that you've blessed us with. I know that people are going through some tough times right now. Cause them to live, um, not trying to get you on their team, but help them, help them to seek to be on your team. And then even in the difficulty, even in, in the pain, that they can understand your peace because that's what you desire. You desire our heart, not our flesh. Father, help us to be obedient to you by giving you all that we are and cause us to live as Joshua 2.0, not 1.0. Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this lesson and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.